So this is the first of probably four lessons um, that I'm titling very simply God and Gender. Uh, so this Sunday, next Sunday, and then second, third Sunday of November, Lord willing. Okay, so if you want a piece of paper, uh, just stick a hand up to the newly minted ushers, and they will, they will get it to you. <clears throat> All right, so our question is, what does God have to do with all that is going on with regard to gender today. In most of the discussions about gender, there's no God at all. But that can't possibly be wise or healthy. So what does, what does God have to do with it? And of course, I am speaking to these things as your pastor, as a Bible believer. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a politician. I'm really not a politician. Uh, so the only professional advice I can give is to say, here's what the Bible says. But the Creator is the ultimate professional in every field. So it's well worth listening to what He says. But to just refer to God as a professional would be way too cold and distant, right? He created human beings with wisdom and with love. He is... God is not a professional with whom you try to get an appointment to see if he can squeeze you in for 15 minutes. Aren't you glad for that? That God is not like the healthcare system? He's the God who sent his son to die on a cross so that every sinner might become a beloved child of God and be able to walk with him through all the brokenness of this life. So yes, God is the greatest professional to listen to about gender but he's also the good, good Father and Savior. So what does God have to do with gender? That is our question. And in the weeks ahead, we'll talk about what the Bible teaches about this. We'll look into some of the most common claims about gender today. We'll, I'll give you a bunch of resource ideas. We'll consider questions about how we interact with these things and our families and work and other relationships. But first we've got to try to somehow wrap our minds around what we're even talking about because the, the terminology is all getting redefined and changed and shifted around and it is, gets bewildering just to keep up with it. So today, um, my, my goal is to just get us oriented. Um, if, if we had to boil everything down to a simple starting point, it would probably be the phrase gender dysphoria. Now, that is a technical term with a technical definition. But 99% of the time, it's not used in the technical sense. It's used very generally for the experience of wanting to be something other than what you are, or as society would say, something other than what you were assigned at birth. Wanting to be a male, even though, as they would say, you were assigned female at birth, and so forth. And this experience of, of feeling a disconnect between your body and who you, who you are is, can be a very painful, very agonizing experience. And when, when it is very painful and agonizing, that's when it's rightfully called dysphoria. Um, and those uh, confusing feelings are something that a Christian could experience 
and they are not something that we should ever laugh about, make fun of, mock. That has absolutely no place in Christian discussions of these things. Now, it is true, though, that gender dysphoria isn't actually dysphoria for everyone. For some people, it's not troubling. It's actually just very exciting for them. They want to be something else. They just know what they want. They're going to make it happen. It's not any great turmoil. It's just exciting for them to switch genders and, and so forth. So, but this is still probably the simplest starting point for us, is the, the, the concept, the general sense of gender dysphoria. So I want to begin by presenting to you a very basic summary of what society says about gender dysphoria. How do they interpret the desire to be something other than your biological sex, and what solutions do they propose? And what I'm trying to summarize... Yes, ma'am. Well, if you think of the word euphoria, which is feeling great about something, it's the opposite of that. Dysphoria. It's feeling very badly about feeling this mismatch between uh, gender and body. So what I'm going to try to summarize here is a widely accepted, and as you know here in California, even a widely forced viewpoint in America today that we can call transgender ideology. An ideology is a set of beliefs that shape our understanding of the world and of ourselves. So transgender ideology is a set of beliefs, and they are definitely beliefs, that shape many people's understanding of the world and themselves. And for many young people today, this set of beliefs is just about the most important set of beliefs they have. It is the centerpiece of their life and their attention and their identity. So what, what is this transgender ideology? I'm going to try to chart it out for us. Remember two things as I do. First of all, I'm just trying to give us a very basic overview to get us oriented. We'll come back to the details later. Second of all, there are huge problems with what I'm about to present. In other words, I'm going to try to give a fair presentation of it, not because I believe it. Um, I think this is completely unbiblical. It's also logically inconsistent and scientifically very problematic. But I'm just trying to give a fair presentation of what the ideology teaches. Okay, so let's begin with biological sex. In some transgender ideology, biological sex exists on a spectrum. Someone might protest to my use of pink and blue here, as if I'm gender stereotyping by even doing this. That's not my point. I'm just a non-graphic designer trying to picture this for us, so don't, don't pick on my colors. So transgender ideology teaches that you might be male or female, or one of an endless variety of intersex possibilities. Now, just as with dysphoria, the word intersex has a technical medical meaning, but most of the time today, it's used in an informal street sense, the TikTok sense, to mean somewhere between the sexes. You're some mixture of male and female. And that, that gets very complicated. We'll talk about this later. But the, the, the transgender activists use the technical medical sense as their evidence for the broad popular sense. 
And that is, should not be done. That is not, not right. But I can't get ahead of myself. So as we have it here on the screen, the word intersects is, intersex is used in the popular street sense that you can be a mix of male and female. But there is another slightly different approach to this, and this is the view that you can be born with part of your body male and part of your body female. And by far and away, this is most often claimed about your brain, that you can have a male brain and a female body or vice versa. So in that sense, it's not so much a spectrum. It's more of a concrete division where your body is one part one and one part the other. Now, in transgender ideology, uh, biological sex is arbitrary. It is assigned by a doctor or parents based on external observation of you when you were born. Now, that word assigned is very important. It is key to this whole view. You are assigned a sex at birth by these authority figures in your life. They looked at your little newborn body and imposed your sex upon you by assigning it. But even so, the good news is that it doesn't matter because all that truly matters is the gender identity that you discern about yourself or choose for yourself. In general, the second of those is the big idea. You, no, no matter what you were assigned at birth, you can choose whatever gender you want. Foundational to this entire ideology is the belief that every person must be free to choose their gender. And yet, at the same time, Transgender ideology is also kind of uncomfortable with the idea that you just chose it. They, so they also frequently talk about figuring out your identity. Many therapists and educators and doctors say things. I, I've heard this phrase so many times. Kids know who they really are. No, that's not a choice phrase, right? That's That's... That doesn't sound like choosing your gender identity. That's like discerning your true gender identity. And there's all this research to try to prove that gender identity is hardwired into your genetics or your brain. But at the same time, you're totally free to choose it. It is very much a case of have your cake and eat it too um, when it comes to, to this. But the bottom line is that gender identity matters far more than biological sex. So let's try to talk about gender as it's understood by transgender ideology. What is gender? And it gets very confusing because the terms sex and gender are constantly interchanged and redefined. So to pin this down is so difficult. But generally speaking, biological sex is supposed to have something to do with your biology, your body. And gender has to do with your I'm going to break it down into three categories. Self-identification, lifestyle, and how you're treated by others. So self-identification is how you think and feel about yourself. Do you think of yourself as male or female or so forth? Lifestyle is how you live. Do you live like a male or live like a female or whatever? And thirdly, how are you treated by others? Do other people look at you as male or female? Do they treat you as male or female? 
Um, those, are the, those are the kind of things that are brought together under the concept of, of gender. Biological sex is sort of about your body. Gender is about how you think of yourself, how you live, and how others treat you. And so in transgender ideology, gender is an endless spectrum of possibilities. You might be male, you might be female, you might be both male and female. I've seen people who use percentages, like I'm 60% male. Um, So the spectrum idea. But you might also be fluid, meaning that you change your gender at various times. You aren't just one thing. You could be male one day and female the next and so forth. Or you might be none, no gender, odd gender, neither male nor female. Um, By the way, I guess we could insert here the word, if if you're familiar with the cisgender term, that means that your gender and your biology line up. You identify in line with your biology. Um, So you might be male, female, anywhere on that spectrum. You might be fluid, you might be none, or you might be uh, something else. An article I came across in Women's Health Magazine used the word tons. There are tons of other gender identities. And the same article said there are, quote, infinite places you can land on infinite gender options. And so some people come out as something non-human, such as an animal or a mermaid or an other kin. Some people say they have multiple identities. Some people, and I think it seems increasingly popular to not want to be pinned down at all. Don't give me a label. I don't need to be one of these things. Um, It's kind of gender fluidity to the max. But no matter how you identify, that identity is what really matters. The bottom box, biological sex, was an arbitrary assignment. And this is where, frankly, critical theory comes in in a major way in transgender ideology. That bottom box was an arbitrary assignment, probably by an oppressive authority figure, to control you. And they don't really know who you are. Your parent, they don't really know. That doctor, they don't really know. Um, And so very closely interrelated to transgender ideology is the critical theory that undermines all authority. Government, home, fathers, mothers, science, language, everything is an oppressive construct um, that we need to break free from. So because Biological sex is assigned arbitrarily. You are completely free to choose for yourself. I mean, because it's assigned arbitrarily and because it's not what matters anyways, you are free to choose for yourself from the infinite variety of gender options. However, even in transgender ideology, as that, that green box seems set pretty free, right? seems like there's a lot of freedom there. However, that's still not really the end of freedom. There's still two more steps that need to be taken. And I don't mean two steps that have to happen in order. I just mean two more things that have to happen for you to truly be free. And one of them is affirmation. Everyone around you, and in transgender ideology, they mean absolutely everyone around you. 
must affirm your stated identity. And by affirmation, they mean belief, approval, and support. First of all, everyone must believe whatever that person says about their gender. If a biological male says, I am female, then they are. Believe them. If they say they are gender fluid or an animal or a non-human identity, it's true because they say so, and you must believe it. Second of all, everyone must approve. So no matter what that identity is, you must say, that's great. You cannot say, oh, or that's interesting, or can we talk about that? You must show that you look favorably on that identity. And then third, everyone must support that identity. Call them by their new name, use their new pronouns, and assist them in whatever transitions this might mean in their life. Show your full support, not only for them as a person, but for their new identity. See that distinction? Not just your support for them as a person, but your support for their new identity, because that is who they are as a person. And if you don't, they will commit suicide or it is very likely they will commit suicide. And that might seem like I'm hyping something. I am not. If you, it is directly stated all the time. Yes, sir? Right, right, absolutely. Yes, this is... The ideology is being forced. Yes. So if you don't believe, approve, and support 100%, they will probably commit suicide. In other words, parents, you will be responsible for your child's likely suicide. You've probably heard this mantra they use, would you rather have a live son or a dead daughter? If your daughter announces she's a boy, would you rather have a live son or a dead daughter? And that's a threat, right? Believe, approve, and support, or suicide is very likely. Now, it's true that the, the rate of the mental health crisis among transgender-identifying individuals is very high, including the rate of suicide. We'll come back and talk about that, about that later. But the leap from that to, therefore, you must believe, approve, and support, or they will commit suicide, is a massive and dangerous leap that we'll talk about later. That's not our point. I cannot get ahead. Um, The other major step that needs to happen, in addition to affirmation, you probably know what it is, right? It is transformation. And transformation can happen in two parts. Part one is essential, or pretty close to essential, but not everyone does part two. So part one is behavior. The person must live as their new identity or they're living in a psychologically damaging state of inauthenticity to themselves. Most often that begins with simple external things like how you dress or how you do your hair. There was one kind of prominent forum on diversity um, in which one of the participants came on stage with knitting and knitted through the panel discussion to make a point, which is really ironic stereotyping. But it points to that behavioral transition that must happen. To find mental and emotional peace and happiness, the person must transform their behavior to that of their new gender identity. 
That's the only way they can be true to who they really are. And underlying all of this is the idea that peace and happiness will only found in being true to who you really are, and who you really are is your gender identity. So then along the way, many people run into another challenge because this... So this ideology insists that your body doesn't matter. Your body is just arbitrary and insignificant, and yet many people find that their body seems to clash with their new identity. And so for a rapidly increasing number of people, the other aspect of transformation is their body. The biology needs to be transformed to match the new gender identity. Now that's challenging for things like mermaids and and other kins. But if we're talking about male and female, there are things that can be done to adjust the secondary sex characteristics of a person. Okay, secondary sex characteristics are not your underlying biological foundation of male or female, but they are that the more the kind of more external, observable characteristics of male and female. You can't change who someone is at their biological foundation. They will always be male or female at that foundational um, genetic level. But Doctors can make a person's voice deeper or higher. They can make you grow more or less body hair. They can even adjust some of your emotional tendencies. Things like that are done mostly through hormonal treatments. And so that, what that is depends on age, either puberty-blocking hormones if it's early enough or cross-sex hormones if it's not early enough. And for some people, what hormones can do is enough transformation for them. But there are big limits to what hormones... Um, hormones can do a lot. But there are big limits to what hormones can do. So many other people then move on to surgical transformation. The first step of that would be the voluntary removal of healthy body parts so that a person's body looks and feels less like the biological sex that they were born with. The next step then is to try to surgically change the person's body to be more like their new gender identity. And again, that's some people go a long ways with that. Some people just go part of the way uh, with that. And there, there are actually surgical aspects of some other parts like vocal cords. Um, some of those things can be are surgical, not necessarily hormonal. Um, so the, the whole point here, though, is that the body must be brought into conformity with the true identity, which is gender. As they say emphatically over and over and over again, you cannot change the gender identity to match the body. The person will probably commit suicide if you try. You must change the body to match the identity. Now again, this can only be done with secondary sex characteristics. And there are significant medical risks and ethical questions about it. Just yesterday I saw the numbers from a a new study that came out last month from Denmark of I think 2,500-some people that showed like a 95% increase in their risk for heart disease after taking cross-sex hormones. Um, I don't, don't quote me on that. I don't remember the exact details. But despite those medical risks, despite the ethical questions about it, today it is considered a very brave thing, a very noble thing for a person to undergo the removal of healthy body parts. Um, and it's considered a very noble thing for a surgeon to do it bringing the body into conformity with their true identity. Okay, so that completes this basic overview. As you can tell, there are lots of details there that we need to come back and try to touch on later. But 
I needed to just try to wrap my mind around the big picture simply. So that, that's my attempt to do, to do that. But now what I want us to do is try to move on to a very simple visual representation of what the Bible would say because this transgender ideology is not true. It's not physical reality and it's not spiritual reality. So how would the Bible portray this instead? So we'll look at the passages later, but right now I just want to try to look at it kind of visually summarized. So again, we'll start with biological sex. God created humanity, male and female. And though there is a lot of similarity between the two, we have two distinct biological profiles right down to our DNA and cells in our body. We are either male or female. And essential to the Christian view, the Bible's view, is the understanding that this is God's calling for each of our lives. It is a good calling in each of our lives. Our bodies are messed up by sin and the curse. And yet our bodies are not bad. They aren't an evil shell that we need to get rid of. The Bible does not brush aside your body as if it's insignificant and your soul is all that matters. That is unbiblical. That is Gnosticism. It's not the truth. God created us as a united whole, both body and soul together. And so your male or female body is an essential and a good part of who God created you to be. Whether or not your body fits into the stereotypes of the world about how perfectly skinny a woman's body needs to be or how perfectly clear your skin needs to be or how athletic a guy needs to be, your body might not fit into those stereotypes at all. And your body might have illnesses or injuries or even deformities that cause great suffering. But you are beautifully and wonderfully made as either male or female by God. And someday, He will make your body new through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So from a biblical standpoint, biological sex is good from God. It is really a calling for each one of us. Now, that does not rule out the reality of DSD. So, DSD is a disorder of sex development. It's the more technical name for intersex conditions. And we'll come back and I'll, we'll, I'll give you details about this. There are rare disorders in which someone is born with certain parts of their body that are abnormal. And those are very sad and difficult disorders. Those are part of the curse of sin and death on our lives and our bodies. And so I'll talk about that a little more later. But DSDs don't change the basic reality that humans are male or female at their very foundational essence. And they definitely do not prove that gender is your true identity and all that matters. That is, would be scientific nonsense. So our God-given maleness or femaleness, if that's a word, defines our essential nature. And so it then sets the God-given direction for our life. So for me, it helps to think of male or female as an arrow, as a direction as a calling from God in a particular direction. In other words, our God-given biology propels us into life in a particular direction as male or female. And this then 
does incorporate those things that are known as gender today. Our gender behavior and calling are not something completely distinct. They're directly connected to our biology. And yes, there are cultural aspects to them and so forth, but ultimately they are part of our God-given direction. In other words, God creates us as male or female and then calls us to live as male or female, which we could call gender. Now, that doesn't mean we have to live up to every cultural stereotype of male or female. Later, we'll explore that more. But for now, a few big things to note. First of all, because we know that our human heart can have many sinful desires, it wouldn't be a surprise at all if some people experience, some of us experience a desire to go a different direction. I mean, ultimately, doesn't the Bible say, all we like sheep have gone astray? So is that a surprise? That's what the sinful heart tends to do. So Christians, you should not be shocked if a male says, I want to be a female, any more than you should be shocked when you say in your heart, I don't want to obey God. I want to do what I want to do. That is what the human heart does. We go astray. And so a male might say, I want to be a female or vice versa. Or a a female might say, I don't like male or female. Yuck. I want to just be none or, or something else or fluid or Whatever. That is the kind of thing the human heart does. And, and partly, look, when people don't have a biblical worldview and they look around at how male and female are portrayed in our culture today and in pornography and so forth, it's no wonder some people are like, yuck, I don't want to be any of that. And we can feel those desires very strongly. They can be authentic Aren't your sinful desires authentic? I mean, like you really have them, right? They can be authentic desires deep in our hearts. They can cause dysphoria. I can really not want what God wants. But that doesn't make them right to abandon our God-given calling as male or female would be sin. We also know that the world can pressure us towards sin. The world can tap into the desires of our flesh and appeal to them. And so that can give us an even greater desire to go your own way. It's like your heart says, why don't you go this way instead of God's way? And then the world is like all these cheerleaders to say, yeah, do it. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want to be. And that's just what we want to hear. So, What I'm saying is that gender dysphoria might come from, first of all, physical suffering. For example, a person who is born with some malformed or ambiguous secondary sex characteristics. That is a very, very difficult physical suffering. And that could result in confusion about whether they are truly fully male or female. Now, those disorders are rare. It's about 1 20th of 1% of people, but they're real. And so dysphoria could come from that kind of physical suffering. Much more commonly, dysphoria can come from social pressure. When transgender ideology dominates nearly every area of American life today and is forced upon people, there's a lot of pressure, especially on teenagers, to get on board. (laughs) There's a huge argument today about 
rapid onset gender dysphoria, ROGD, which is basically the idea that there's a social pressure that can result in these sudden bursts of teenagers, especially all coming out as trans um, at about the same time in, in huge numbers, 40%, 60% of, of classes and so forth in school. Um, and I mean, parents see it. It's like plain as day to moms and dads. But then the scientists, they're, they're trying so hard to produce studies to tell parents that you're not seeing what you're seeing, that there is no social pressure on your young people that is any factor in this. Um, and I don't know, I just think parents are ultimately, I hope some parents are ultimately going to shake their head and say, I'm sorry, your, your, your study doesn't disprove what is obvious, that the human heart is susceptible to social pressure. And then most commonly of all, dysphoria might come from the desires of our flesh because our flesh is constantly trying to pull us off of God's way. Am I saying things right now, live streaming and being recorded, that could be criminal someday or already are in some places? Yes, I am. What matters here is how we respond to that pull of our heart. All of us experience temptation all the time. I think it's really helpful for us to realize that temptation is a type of dysphoria. Our hearts buck against God's word and God's will and God's way. And so as a sen- in a sense, as sinners here on earth, we always live with dysphoria until we're glorified. Gender dysphoria is one of the many types of dysphoria we live with because our flesh is uncomfortable with God's ways and keeps trying to pull us in another direction. But the key is whether we just give in to that and follow whatever we feel like we want or whether we will trust God and his calling and his goodness instead. So let's, let's go back now and get three more clarifications on the biblical view of sex and gender. So first of all, in God's creation, male and female fit together physically and in other ways in marriage, sex, parenting, and family. We fit together in biology and in gender behavior and calling. And so marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Sex is between one man and one woman in a marriage covenant. Parenting is done by one man and one woman. And the foundation of a family is one man and one woman. We are rejecting God if we try to build marriage, sex, parenting, and family on the quicksand of gender identity. It is quicksand. The only solid foundation for any of those four things is the God-given complementary relationship between male and female. And that is not in any way to diminish something like single parenting and the importance of that. Next, there are God-given gender essentials. There are certain essentials that God says are fundamental aspects of living as male and female. And we're going to come back in a later week and try to explore what those might be. But as God sets us in this direction as male or female, and as we try to figure out what that means for our daily lives, the first job is to understand the biblical gender essentials. That's the main path to stay on. However, outside of those God-given essentials, there can be a lot of variety in what it means to live as male or female. 
outside of the of those essentials, each of us is going to have our own individual uniqueness. Notice we're still on an overall path in God's direction, right? We haven't changed direction from God's calling. We're not saying God made me male, but I reject that. We're recognizing that within what it means to be a God-given male, there's a lot of variety. And some of that variety may fit in with typical or cultural understandings of male and female, and some of it may not. And the moment I start using examples, I get myself in trouble, guaranteed. But I mean, we already talked about uh, (laughs) plenty of controversial things today, so why not add more? So here I go, getting myself in trouble. Okay, a man might love hunting. Now, I realize that in some places, hunting is an essential part of providing for your family. But at least in modern American life, hunting is not a biblical gender essential. And I know that shooting stuff has a reputation for being an especially male thing to do, and maybe that is partly because of how God wired males. But the love of shooting stuff is ultimately going to be a matter of individual uniqueness. And again, I know that some might, might say, well, but isn't there a nurturing side of, of females that makes them less likely to love shooting stuff? Maybe. My point is that it's not a gender essential. It's not a biblical gender essential. And so there are wonderful Christian women who love to hunt. And some people may not think that is a very womanly thing to do. That's why, it, that's why I put it over on this side of the road. Because some people might say, you're a female leftist. You like hunting. But there's nothing unbiblical about it. We've been to Alaska. And so, similarly, to get myself in more trouble, A woman might be more interested in auto repair or building stuff, or a woman might be very analytical, or she might love sports, and those things might be thought of as more masculine kinds of things. But they're not a rejection of God's calling. They're not a rejection of biblical womanhood. They're matters of personal uniqueness. There is absolutely no need to look at a woman who likes computers and drills and football and say, ah, you were born in the wrong body. No. Biblically, we say God made each person unique. And within our God-given male and female identity is a wonderful uniqueness. And so then I can make another list and continue to get myself in more and more and more trouble. You might have men who love cooking or art or flowers, or they might be quite emotional or very highly verbal. They might say more words in a day than their wife, contrary to the charts. Ah, they must have had the wrong gender assigned at birth. No! There's wonderful uniqueness in people, and that uniqueness comes from God. And within our uniqueness, we can be fully faithful to God's overall calling in our life in a direction as male or female. That doesn't mean it will always be easy. Our bodies might make it hard. The world will make it hard. Our flesh will make it hard. There will be a lot of dysphoria in various ways along the way. And we may feel pulled off that path and pulled off of God's calling. I'm not saying it's an easy path in a broken world. But it is the path of true life, both now and forever. It is in line with the reality of God's 
good creation. Now, just to parallel our previous chart, we should add something else here. On this path, we discover God's affirmation. God's affirmation. Because Jesus died and rose again for us and forgave us and made us the children of God, God himself is the one who says to us, you are precious in my sight, you are honored, and I love you. Isaiah 43, verse 4. We don't have to have anybody else's affirmation. Now, God made us for people, and he made us for relationships, and we thrive in loving community. Yet, at the end of the day, if God says, I love you, that's enough. We know and love and trust the God who formed us in the womb, redeemed us, and loves us. He tells us that we are beautifully and wonderfully made. He is the one who gives our lives so much purpose and dignity and hope, and that is actually far better than online glitter families that they're promising these young people today. And then on this path, we also get to participate in Christ-like transformation, not trying to force our body to conform to our gender identity, but having our whole person transform more and more to be like our Savior. So here we have my feeble attempt to picture transgender ideology that is dominating American life and thought today and a biblical anthropology or God's view of gender. Okay, Um, we will continue next Sunday. If you have particular questions that you would like me to make sure I address in the other three, the remaining three parts of this series, please let me know. Please talk to me. Um, I would love to know what's on your mind and what you, what would be helpful uh, for you. And I'd like to close with just one verse this morning. As I've worked on this study, I have sometimes been very overwhelmed. Um, but lots to say about that. Lots of reasons why I want to give you hope and encouragement and confidence. And I, again, I can't get too far ahead. So I'm just one verse this morning that has been precious to me this week and last week as I've uh, uh, <laughs> working on this is like, it's like, I've never done this, but it, it's like, have you seen the Spartan race where they're crawling through the mud with the, with the uh, uh, razor wire right above them? You know, I, that's what I feel like I'm doing, trying to, trying to get through these, work through these things. And so this is precious to me. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, brothers and sisters, those of us who've been called to parent in America in 2023, those of us who've been called to live here in such a time as this, be not dismayed. We are going to find that though the times we live in are so dark, We have every reason to press on with joyful courage. God is with us, and we really, really can make a difference when we're equipped with truth. 
We're not just talking about these things so that we can hide in our hole till Jesus comes again. We're talking about these things because God called us to not put the light under a basket, but on top of a hill that it might be seen. And so, fear not. God is with you. Don't be dismayed. He is your God. His strength is sufficient for you. His help is sufficient for you. He is upholding you with his right hand that always does everything right. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the overthrow of an ideology that is so false and so damaging, both now and forever. Defeat it. Drive it away. Let not the one who loves to steal and kill and destroy continue to do so with this. Would you build our hearts with joyful confidence in your word and your good ways so that we might be able to shine no matter the situation, no matter the darkness, no matter the strength of an ideology that cannot snuff out your light and your truth. So please equip us as a church family. And Lord, you know each person who's here and each of the ways in which these things directly impact them. Those who have family members, those who are in the classroom, those who are struggling in their own heart with dysphoria, in all the different ways that this affects each of those who are here in our church family today, would you bring your truth and your grace and your hope to their lives? May our church be a place that boldly stands for the truth and yet lovingly walks with broken people, which is all of us, through our sinful struggles in a broken world. So help us to have your tone your attitude, your heart about these things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.